Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Live, Learn, Lead with me, Allison Geskin. Today, we are going to deep dive into the business and personal sides of Paul Hardy, founder of Paul Hardy Design, creator, curator, designer, humanitarian, global connector, storyteller, and a trailblazer. And to be quite honest, one of the most iconic Canadian figures in our generation. So what made him this way? Why this deep-rooted desire to weave curiosity of the present in everything that he touches? What drives him to go beyond the ordinary and play in a life of extraordinary? Taking his principles for design and evolving into a lifestyle branding and interiors? So today, my friends, I want you to sit back, kick off your shoes, and buckle in, for we are about to go on one incredible ride, one where we look at what it takes to be Paul as he continues to grow, stretch, evolve, breathing life into everything he touches. Welcome. Thank you. That was very humbling to hear. And also challenging for me to try to uh, live up to anyway. It's the truth. That's how I see it. Wow. Thank you. That's how I see you. So where were you born? I was born in Winnipeg, Mm -hmm. but I've lived most of my adult life in Calgary. So I've sort of been adopted by association. (laughs) Did you ever think... When you were growing up in your teenage years, in those really like formative early years, that your life would be so incredibly rich and so diverse, and you had would have this incredible playground to play in. Did you ever think that that would be your life? Well, I hope it doesn't sound conceited to say yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, of course it doesn't. Um, Yeah, I never felt, no disrespect to Winnipeg, but I never felt rooted there. Mm -hmm. It was actually really fascinating to me, just as a complete aside. I went to my 25th reunion. Like high school reunion? Junior high. (gasps) No! Yeah, and it was the craziest thing because... So many people I went to school with live within a three block radius of where they grew up. They hang out with the same people. Their kids go to the same school we went to. And to me, it felt like they were all caught in some sort of time warp. And I just couldn't believe that I had lived such a different life than them and it's not that i feel like mine my life was more extraordinary just different it was just more i thought i wonder what you know is it community that keeps them there or you know closer connection to family i just i was kind of more fascinated by it did you ask them did you ask anyone no i didn't actually i I listened a lot Mm -hmm. to to their stories and that was sort of what i had concluded is that they had i think deeper ties to like sort of living outside what they were familiar with yeah so i always knew that i would leave Mm -hmm. um and i always knew that i wanted to be in design it was a rare thing i think my mother tells me that when i was three years old i used to pull on her pant leg and say i want to sew i want to sew really and i had definitively decided by grade six that I was either going to go into fashion or interior design. 
Huh. And it was in grade seven that I met my homeroom teacher, Irene Coaches, who I'm actually still friends with to this day. I love that. I love that about you, though. She actually came for my 10-year anniversary of my business and uh, came to the show, and I was able to honor her at a brunch, which was really amazing. But um, yeah, when I was in grade seven, she had come from Europe. She had been teaching uh, abroad, Mm -hmm. and I just thought she was the most amazing thing because, honestly, I don't think I've ever seen her wear the same outfit twice. I was like, always astounded wondering how big her closet must be (laughs) and she used to come to school as a homeroom teacher in winnipeg in grade seven wearing like these incredible you know lacroix jackets with like pom-poms on them and you know floor-length pleated skirts and and i just i don't know it was And she was the first person, she saw some of my fashion illustrations. Mm -hmm. That was the first year that I started doing In grade seven? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you still have those? Uh, I don't know. Maybe my parents do in a box somewhere. I'm not sure. I didn't even really know about fashion until grade six, actually, because my sister had gone and bought a Vogue magazine Mm -hmm. and tore out tear sheets and pinned them on a bulletin board in her room. (laughs) And I remember going into her room and it was almost like, you know, the celestials opened (laughs) up or something. And it was like, oh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I was enamored by the editorials. And so that was really what I think were the initial catalysts. And then... And always women's wear? Or was it just fashion in, in general? Uh, primarily women's wear, yeah. yeah. I mean, I always had a personal interest in fashion myself. Mm. I, you know, I used to wear some pretty outrageous things to school, actually. I, I come from four generations of bankers and accountants, so I'm, <laughs> you know, I don't like using the term black sheep to the family, but I was definitely, like my parents, I think, were a bit perplexed as to what to do with me. Fortunately, my mom had the good sense to um, bring me to my great aunts. And my great aunt was essentially like Martha Stewart 50 years before her time. Like she (laughs) knew how to do everything. And she taught me everything from learning to set a table, to quilting, to needlepoint, to embroidery. I used to go there on all of my days off and she essentially taught me everything that I knew. And there's like these incredible stories. She was an amazing woman because her husband had passed away at a fairly young age and she was left to raise five kids by herself. Wow. And I have this amazing photo of her wearing this tailored sort of Dior looking suit, carrying architectural drawings under her arm with a brooch on her diamond brooch on her lapel. And she's walking down Portage Avenue in Winnipeg. And she was just such a stylish person. But I used to hear these stories about how she became obsessed with pink. Like, remember the Audrey Hepburn movie where they sing about think pink or Mm -hmm, whatever? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, she went and painted her entire house pink, including the piano and the telephone. No. And so they were making jokes all about the fact that she was so obsessed with, with that color at that time. But that was just the type of person she was. And so she really I enjoyed life, didn't she? And lived, probably lived it to the full, like squeezed everything she possibly could out of it. Yeah. She was just a remarkable person. And 
sadly, she developed dementia mm. before she ever got to see the kind of fruits of her investments. So. Mm -hmm. But I definitely feel like she, you know, was the mentor. Just you've been surrounded by incredibly talented, creative. Yeah, I, you know, I heard uh, in high school, I remember a, a professor saying that time is your most valuable commodity mm -hmm. because only you can choose to give it away. Yeah. That resonated with me um, so much. And it made me very uh, mindful and intentional about how I was going to utilize my time. And so I remember my parents were like, well, go get a job at McDonald's or something. I was like, no, I'm not going to do that because I'm not interested in being a proprietor of a fast food chain. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and got a job working for Fabricland. That was my first job. Bet you that was like Nirvana for you. You could touch everything, feel everything. Well, it was definitely like a hands-on learning experience. Mm. Um, pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> but it really taught me a lot about cloth and the hand of things and the feel of things and how to discern certain things being good versus not. Mm -hmm. And so every other job that I did had to be somehow related to the industry that I was interested in, whether mm -hmm. it was working in a costume company or doing alterations or window displays, working in retail, like it was all, they were all sort of facets of the business to give me a bit of a well-rounded sort of understanding. Mm -hmm. And it prepared me for, you know, what I was to do moving forward. Did you ever think that, what was it? Was it, the, was it Toronto? Was it your first time out into like the foray into the world and you went to Toronto Fashion Week and you yeah. got labeled a star is born. Yeah, it was it, it was an interesting situation. Um, so I had worked for Holt Renfrew for four years as a personal shopper. Then I left there and I started making a collection in the basement of uh, what my friends deemed as the Bat Cave because it was a basement <laughs> of a studio apartment. And um, I was making everything in the kitchen uh, at my cutting table in the kitchen. Kelly Strait from Mode Models was having dinner with Barb Atkin, mm -hmm. who uh, she and I were acquainted uh, when I had worked at Holt Renfrew. She was the fashion director there at the time. And she was asking how I was doing because she hadn't seen me in a while since I had left the store. And he says, oh, he's making all these amazing clothes in the basement of his bat cave. And so she showed up at my house at 11 o'clock at night, knocking on the basement window, wanting to see what I was working on. <laughs> and she tried on a bunch of stuff. She said, oh, you should be showing this in Paris or something. And I, I thought it was just more of an off-the-cuff comment at the time. But she flew back to Toronto and told uh, Robin Kay, who was the president of the Fashion Design Council of Canada, about me and Robin flew out to meet me. And so I showed her my work and kind of told her my story, I guess. Mm. Um, and then they asked me to open the ready to wear shows in Toronto. How did that make you feel? I suppose I should say, oh, I was super overwhelmed and I was really excited about it, but it just, uh, I viewed it as being, you know, 
I guess being a spiritual person, I just sort of viewed it as a divine appointment or a serendipitous. Right. It was um, just right. Yeah. I love so, that. So, you know, I have this motto, don't push a rock up a hill. And so I often think that if things are evolving in a very organic way, mm-hmm. that that's usually a positive a sign of the direction that you're going in. I love that. I call them slipstreams. Oh, that's a cool. Yeah. So like when you're, in the, when you're in the slipstream and everything's working the way that it should and you're learning and, but it feels right. You're yeah. in the, you're in the slipstream. And when you fall out of it, you know, automatically. Mm-hmm. And so you have to bring yourself back into kind of that slipstream of where you're supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. And, and then, you know, everything kind of aligned itself. Gail O'Brien, who was my former boss at Holt Renfrew, she and her husband, David, who was the former CEO of CP Rail, mm. had just relocated to Toronto and she had asked how she could help me. And so I asked her to throw a press brunch in her um, brand new penthouse <laughs> in Toronto. She had just moved in two weeks before. I don't even think any of her friends had seen her house. And I don't think I could ever really articulate how much it meant to me because she took it upon herself to call Holt Renfrew at that time. And they had just expanded and opened a cafe. It was the first time it had opened and they were serving tartines, which was like the <laughs> it sort of thing. And she had the chef come from Holt Renfrew and do this whole brunch for like 60 press people. Good Lord. In her, uh, new home and she allowed me to set up my collection in her bedroom so that it felt like a woman's dressing room and it was just the most gracious thing and then for the show it was really interesting because i had met Jeannie becker at outrageous a couple years before when she had come to host it for um acad Mm. one of my clients here who is originally from redford saskatchewan town of like 500 people very uh, fortuitously uh, went to school with the then president of Elite Models um, in Canada. (laughs) And so she called him and said, you know, help him out. And she's never told me this, but I'm convinced in my mind that, you know, she probably paid him without me knowing about it, like more than, because he only charged me like a hundred bucks a model. And and I thought, how is that possible? Know, possible? So I'm pretty sure she like slipped him something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he came to the fittings, mm-hmm. which were in my friend's apartment. It was she had a warehouse loft across from Ryerson University, and that's where we did the fittings. And he came and saw the first collection. And I didn't ask him to do this. Uh, his name's Elmer Olson, but he went and he phoned every major editor and he said, if there's one show that you need to be at, this is the show. I just got goosebumps. And um, and so he called Jeannie and Jeannie showed up at this my, my friend's condo and I opened the door and I'm like, it's you. Or no, she <laughs> said that to me. She goes, it's you. And I said, it's you. And she's like, I know you. And I said, I know you too. <laughs> That was um, a kind of full circle moment, I think, for me, in a way. Jeannie was my, you know, fashion television. Mm -hmm. Like for a kid on the prairies who comes from a banking family, you know, not really having a lot of exposure to 
you know, culture um, and fashion in particular, she was the source. Being able to actually have her interview me about my collection, so much of, of that was tied into all of the education that she had provided me with. Mm-hmm. So we had a good discussion. I went to do the show and it was really funny because I didn't know how to get a shoe sponsor. So I thought, okay, well, I'll have the models wear bare feet. And I didn't know how to get a hair sponsor. So I used extra scraps of fabric to create head scarves for all the models to wear. And I didn't really have a makeup artist. So I just told the models to wear foundation and put white eyeliner or eyeshadow uh, on their eyes. And actually, Hung Van Gogh, um, the who's like international model or makeup artist to the stars now, he had come out and and did all the makeup. Oh my goodness! So it was this very collective effort, you know. Um, and a, a bunch of people from here flew out to see the show, which was amazing. I didn't know how to get a DJ, so I decided to show the collection to complete silence, not realizing that that would be a groundbreaking thing. <laughs> that wasn't really the attention. It was just more out of necessity than want. But the whole collection was inspired by silence, oddly enough. And so I thought, well, I guess it makes sense to just show it to silence then so i remember the room went black and there was this guy who read it was actually a biblical scripture reading and the end of it said what are you doing here it was all about a still small voice thinking that the voice was going to come in the wind or fire or an earthquake and instead it came as a still small voice and it said what are you doing here and then a spotlight came on like those old gucci shows where the follow spot just (laughs) and and the whole collection was black and white because i could only afford two threads or colors and two colors of fabric i tried to dye everything in my sink thinking black was easy to dye which was a nightmare so it was all these different shades of black and i thought well i don't have any other choice i'm gonna have to use it and so i had all these different shades of black layered it was quite funny because the media there was this awkward tension because Can you imagine sitting in a show for 12 to 14 minutes where nobody's saying anything? All you hear is the cameras clicking. And then people eased into that and Mm. it started to feel... The energy shifted? Yeah. Mm. Like initially it was, they were like, oh, this is sort of uncomfortable. Like, is there a sound Mm -hmm. problem? And then all of a sudden it just like people eased into it and it was really restful. So Jeannie ended up writing this incredible article. She was the one who said, you know, there's just this gut feeling that you get she had it when she met Mark Jacobs and Stella McCartney. And she said she got the same thing when she met me. And, um, and so there was this full page article in the national post that she had written. Then I believe it was Deborah Fulsang wrote this unbelievable article in the globe and mail. And she described like the whole collection as this was something emerging out of the desert kind of thing. And Mm. that um, she was the one who said, you know, a star is born. And that was really how it all evolved. Mm -hmm. Um, I certainly don't view it like I had orchestrated anything. It just happened. I, I guess I've always viewed my, my business, my life, I guess, my intention behind it is 
to serve something greater than myself. Mm. So I feel like I'm just stewarding something, you mm-hmm. know, and and I don't have an ownership over it, if that makes sense. Totally. How do you say yes and no to projects? Because you've worked on some pretty amazing projects. Do you listen to like, does your intuition guide you? You know, I had, when I was in university, this woman came to me and asked me to make her a dress. Mm-hmm. I told her it was going to be $695 to make this dress. And I guess maybe back then it was considered a lot of money. But when you think that it was a custom dress and the number of hours, like I had, and I, material. I thought it was very fair. Mm-hmm. Well, she thought it was outrageous. And I thought, okay, well, then I'm not making the dress for you. And it was sort of that I had drawn a line in the sand mm-hmm. of what my, you know, at the time, what I felt my worth was. I thought, well, if you're not going to pay for it, somebody else will. And so I, what I'm trying to say is that I never wanted to take scraps from the table mm-hmm. if, you know. You wanted to have your place at the table. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Or create your own table. And sometimes you have to, you know, you have to wait for somebody to appreciate and see the worthiness of it. But if you choose to take the scraps from the table, then that may be all your, that's how you perceive yourself, you right. know? You're, you're typecast yourself into a certain yeah. box. Yeah. Well, it's sort of along the same lines, like, you know, you, you choose how you want people to treat you, right? Yeah. So if you're going to allow yourself to be mishandled by somebody, mm-hmm. well, then, you know, you need to draw a line in the sand for that. Yeah. I think everything is a choice, including happiness. You choose to be happy. Yeah. Nobody makes you happy. It's a choice. Yeah. Yeah. And then so from there, it morphed. Yeah. From So, you know, it's interesting. My first collection was inspired by a biblical story all about Joshua and the fall of Jericho, which is when Israelites went to conquer this city called Jericho. Mm -hmm. And they did it through silence. So that was sort of the reason that there's power in the midst of silence and in silence were spoken to. But the interesting thing about um, the history of the Israelites, I can't believe I'm telling you this. As a Jewish person, you should know this. (laughs) But, um, you know, it wasn't like they could go directly to the promised land. That's right. They had to conquer different cities. Mm -hmm. And so I viewed that as a guideline for my own business. Mm. In that I couldn't just go to New York directly. Mm -hmm. I had to start where where it was. So I showed my, my first unofficial sort of collection at, at Outrageous for ACAD. And then I went to Toronto and showed my first like wholesaleable collection in Toronto. And then it was actually Barb Atkin who suggested that I go to show at LA Fashion Week. I didn't even know there was an LA Fashion Week at the time. And it was run by the seventh on six people in New York who did who did the well at the time it was called the tents because it was at Bryant Park and okay. they used to set up the tents, tents in Bryant Park, but they had launched this West Coast, mm-hmm. um, you know, offshoot. I phoned up seventh uh, on six and I said, "Well, I'd like an application for you know LA Fashion Week," and they're like, "Who are you?" And I said, oh, well, I just showed my collection in Toronto. You know, I don't know if now I would have had the balls, pardon my French there, um, (laughs) to to do that. But I was just so, I think. um, Why not? Blissfully, like, naive about 
So I phoned them and I said, well, can I have this application? So reluctantly, they faxed me one. I filled it out, sent it back to them. And I called them the next day and I was like, I just wanted to confirm, you know, what my time slot will be. I love and they're, it. And they're like, well, you know, we have to finish receiving the rest of the applications. I was like, oh, okay. So the, a week went by and I called them again and um, they said, oh, you know, we're not we're not ready to make a decision or something. So another week went by. So I phoned them again and they said, oh, didn't anyone call you? And I said, no. And she said, oh, well, we had so many people, you know, asking uh, or submissions that you were shortlisted and we don't have a spot for you. Mm. I was like, I am not trying to hear that. I was like, and what are the chances of this changing? And she said, well, unless by some miracle, it's not going to change. And I remember saying to her, well, I believe in miracles, so maybe we'll be talking again. <laughs> I literally said that to her. And, and I hung up the phone and I called a friend of mine. I said, you know, I firmly believe that I am supposed to show at LA Fashion Week. And he said, well, if you believe that, then you have to walk in that belief. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, you have to plan the show as if it's going to happen. And I thought, wow, that's really like Noah building the ark or, you know, getting out and actually trying to walk on water, you know. Ironically, my second collection um, was all inspired by a miracle. It was based on um, Jesus healing a blind man with clay. Mm. And how, and I had paralleled the idea of how it says man was formed from the dust of the earth. And I thought, well, if you mix, you know, spit or it says Jesus spit into the earth and formed clay. Mm -hmm. And so I thought if you mix moisture with dirt, it forms clay. And so I started thinking, well, if man was formed out of the dust of the earth, then he was essentially using the same practice of how we were created. So is it possible that he molded a new pair of eyes because it says that the guy was born blind from birth. So that was the whole premise of this. Mm. So I was building this whole collection and it was all very kind of in these, you know, earthy colors and, you know, like raw cut shearlings and chunky sweaters and all this sort of stuff. And I went to show this at LA Fashion Week. Well, I'll get a pause. <laughs> Need plot exposition here. So... Um, it was about two weeks before the shows were supposed to happen. Yeah. And I wasn't hearing anything. And my friends were like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? Like, what are you going to do? And I, because I had planned the after show. I had planned the gift bags. I sent out press releases saying that I would be showing on this day, time to be announced, after party at 7 p.m. kind of thing. And I said, well, I guess... If, if the time slot doesn't happen, then I'll show it at the after party. Like I just, I didn't really have a plan B. Yeah. So I was journaling and I remember distinctly writing, how can you design a collection based on a miracle if you don't believe you can have one for yourself? And I felt like it was like this stab in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's it. That was what I was supposed to learn. And I thought, even if the show doesn't happen, I know that it's possible, but even if it doesn't happen, that was what I was supposed to learn. And immediately when I came to that revelation, the phone rang. No. And it was the woman from 7th on 6th that I spoke with. Oh, my God. 
God. And she said, so we've had a cancellation and we're just wondering if you would still be available to show. I said, well, could I have an hour and call you back? And she said, yeah, I think we can give you an hour. <laughs> well, she thought I was going to be scrambling to yeah. plan this whole thing. But I actually was calling all my friends to tell them that they could stop <laughs> praying for this miracle because it, it had happened. happened. It's incredible. The, and so, so I ended up going out there and the time slot that had opened up was three hours for, before my after party on the date of the press release Holy that I had shit. sent out. So I got there and I, I went to get my package uh, for the shows and um, they were like super sort of, oh, well, good luck on your show, you know. Because <laughs> like, you just, only had two weeks. <laughs> yeah. And, and I said, just you watch. I'm the dark horse in this one. Yeah. And so everyone at LA Fashion Week was showing like gold lame bikinis and everything. And here I am showing like shearlings and chunky knit sweaters and jerseys and all this stuff. And I remember Rose Apodaca, who worked for Women's Wear Daily, wrote this like half page article in Women's Wear Daily about my show and saying, finally, clothes that real women can wear. The vice president of Donna Karen Women's Wear, who I had met um, previously, called me up and she said, what is going on? Like, <laughs> she said, you've created this buzz. People are wondering, like, who you are and where you came from and all this stuff. And so that was what opened the door for me to show at a New York Fashion Week the following season. And so then I went and showed... Incredible. Uh, uh, a few seasons in New York. Mm -hmm. I had not envisioned yeah. <laughs> for myself in Winnipeg, to your earlier question. Um, but I do remember very distinctly um, when I graduated from university, I didn't know what to do next. You know, I had graduated. I didn't know if I was to go work for someone. Or mm -hmm. I ended up winning a bunch of industry awards um, as a student in my final year. And Sandra Patana, who used who's on City Line, does those fashion uh, segments on okay. City Line. She ended up emceeing one of the shows that I did with my thesis collection um, in university, and she wanted to buy some of it. And she ended up running into one of my classmates at Mac Cosmetics, and okay. she had said, "Oh, I was at the show that my friend won." And she's like, "Oh my God, you know him?" And she called me to buy a couple pieces from the collection. She went and took it upon herself to call Barb Atkin and and Ian Hilton, who were both fashion directors at the time. Well, she arranged a meeting. Um, this is before my career obviously ever started. I went to meet with them and they looked through my portfolio and they told me, get out of the country as fast as you can. <laughs> they said, you know, we tell most students, oh, why do you need to leave Canada or whatever? But they said, you know, we really think that you have what it takes to do this on an international level. So I went to New York to look for a job and Ian photographed his, or not photographed, photocopied his entire address book and gave it to me the day before I went to New York. And so 
I started calling all these people from like Donna Karen and Calvin Klein and and Jeffrey Bean and I had all these meetings with these different designers and Eleanor Lambert who used to be the editor of Vogue magazine and was this like institution well I phoned her up and it was such a cool sorry this is a bit backtracky but it, it's kind of an interesting I love it thing so I phoned her up and I said you know, I got your number from Ian Hilton. She said to me, well, are you a designer? And <laughs> that was the first time anyone had ever asked me that question. Really? And I thought, well, yeah, I guess I am. Like, I, I had never even thought of myself that way before. She said, well, what's your aesthetic like? And at the time, I had been designing clothes that were sort of similar to like Oscar de la Renta and Jeffrey Bean. And uh, I, those were the names that I thought were most closely aligned with mm -hmm. my work. And she said, okay, you can meet those people. And I said, well, wouldn't you like to see my portfolio first? And she said, well, you wouldn't be calling me if you didn't have the goods. <laughs> and so then I, it was just like such a huge, like learning curve mm -hmm. just through experience that way mm -hmm. of recognizing, you know, things about yourself, needing somebody else to point them out to you mm -hmm. and allow them to like actually germinate in your, you know, in yeah. your spirit, I guess. Yeah. Or, yeah. So I ended up meeting all these people. And then she called me up out of the blue and she said, well, I recommended you for the head design position of Notori and I was she's like do you know what that is and I said I have no idea and she's like well you should <laughs> and you need to go meet with Kitty D'Alessio do you know who she is and I'm like no and she goes well you should <laughs> and uh Kitty D'Alessio used to be the CEO of Chanel Jesus I was 23 at the time oh my I was wearing an Armani oh. suit that I had bought at Value Village that was two sizes too big on me because it was the only thing I could afford. <laughs> and the next thing I knew, I was sitting in Josie Notori's office being interviewed. <laughs> and I remember it so distinctly. Her whole office was all burlwood. And she had these white orchids in every window. And she was wearing this white suit. And she had this leopard blouse with a starched sort of big bowed uh, coming off her neck and she was like flipping through my uh, portfolio and she's like oh I, I don't know and uh, oh my goodness she says do you have any questions for me and I said yes I'm wanting to know if you run your company with integrity because I'm not interested <gasps> in working for somebody who's not <laughs> and she like and she kind of cocked her head back and she sort of furrowed her eyebrows and she's like, how old are you? And I said, 23. And uh, she said, oh, just a baby. She's like, go see Kitty. So then I wandered down the hall and I went to see Kitty. Yeah. So I had all these incredible experiences. So I was up for the head design position of a company. And, At 23. Yeah. And... Gail O'Brien called me because she had heard about me through Kelly Strait yeah. and asked me if I would come and work 
here at Holt Renfrew. And so, you know, I was planning on moving to New York and then I had this job opportunity. And I said, okay, well, if, you know, if I meant to go to Calgary, then, you know, I need a ride there, a place to live. And within 24 hours, I had a ride there, a place to live, and this job offer from Gail. And so I decided to come here and everyone thought I was crazy because Mm. they would think, oh, you come out of design school. Like, why are you going to work in retail? But I thought that it would be a great opportunity to learn the other side of the business. Mm -hmm. So smart. So that's what I did is I worked for them and I learned like why clients were buying, why they weren't buying, working directly with the uh, competitor's product, you know, inevitable competitor's product to understand how to overcome those objections. Mm -hmm. And I believe that that really curved my ability because I got to work directly with that consumer. And I also learned the whole back end of, you know, the business. Of, of the business yeah. from, a, from wholesaling perspective. I remember talking with the head designer at Donna Karen and he had told me that he thought it was the best decision I could have ever made because he said most designers never take the opportunity to work directly with clients. They don't know why people are buying. And really? I think the greater purpose for me being in Calgary and and choosing to be here and choosing to stay here, which has been an interesting journey. I never envisioned that I would start a fashion business living in Calgary mm-hmm. um, or think it would be possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, that definitely had its obstacles. But one of the things that I often say to students is that you have to pick your priorities. And if your priority is, you know, to be close to family or, and your family lives, you know, in a small town, well, you're never going to be an international designer, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So you need to figure out what your priorities are and allow those to lead your life. And so for me, I valued relationship. I valued the refuge that Calgary brought to me. Um, in the craziness of mm-hmm. the fashion world. Like I, I knew that if I existed in it, that it would be like an undertow, you know? Right. And I always wanted to be quite grounded. Mm-hmm. So I, I managed to figure out a way. I mean, it obviously requires me to travel a lot, but I managed to figure out a way where I could be in the business, but not in the world of it. Right. And I remember Women's Wear Daily describing me as a fashion nomad, (laughs) saying that I like fly in, I do these collections, and then I disappear for six months and nobody knows (laughs) where I am. Because you're in Calgary. (laughs) Because I'm in Calgary. (laughs) And now with technology and um, I think there's more opportunity for people to live wherever they want Mm -hmm. because... You know, when I first started, that wasn't really an option. Right. But now, you know, you can pretty much do everything virtually. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's certain aspects that are a lot tougher for people going, like wanting to go into the business now. Like the, it's a totally different industry than when I first started. Sure. Because most people never saw the collections until they went, were in magazines and then hit the stores. Mm -hmm. Now you can see it minutes afterwards. Mm -hmm on Instagram or even live, you know, it creates this 
a hamster in a wheel effect where mm-hmm. you need to have more content more often, you know, like more collections because it's all immediate gratification. Now. That's right. And it never used to be that way. No, it used to be, it, certainly life used to be elongated much more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I actually welcomed COVID. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> not, not obviously the pandemic, but the break. Yeah. It was the weirdest thing because I thought I'm actually in a business that can be irrelevant which is a weird thing when you think that fashion, film, music are all sort of governing arenas in our social culture. Mm -hmm. But when the whole world stopped, people thought, I don't need this anymore. Yeah, I'm stuck in my house. I'm wearing my pajamas, you know? And so it made me really have to try to think about, you know, thankfully I had diversified a number of years prior mm-hmm. um, into interiors. Mm-hmm. So the the irony of it is that fashion took a nosedive and I'm not going to beat a dead horse. You know, I'll do special orders, but I'm not going to, I just thought it was really, uh, you know, and this is no disrespect to my, you know, contemporaries who tried to press on, but I thought designing clothes that nobody wants to wear amidst a down economy where people can't work or, you know, are having struggling, you know, yeah. it just felt like crass in a way, yeah. you know? Yeah. So that took a total nosedive. And, you know, I was a bit concerned, obviously. And then because people were stuck in their houses, mm-hmm people started calling me about interior projects. And so it was like this pendulum swing. And miraculously, I still made a profit during COVID. Fantastic. Um, It was just a shift of revenue. Sure. And I really learned the idea of diversifying Mm -hmm. um, when the stock market crashed in 2008. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was gonna be the death of my business back then. Right. So when COVID actually happened, I wasn't in a panic mode. Mm-hmm. I wasn't like, eh, I'm unraveling kind mm-hmm. of thing because I had been there before and I had operated really close to the bone at that time and managed to like break even. Yeah. And so it always sort of like Worked that was, its way out. yeah, that was a huge life lesson for me in 2008. Hmm. What do you see in the future for you? Well, it's interesting when, like, I'm now in my 19th year of business. So what a lot of people don't know is that I ended up uh, around my 10-year anniversary, I applied for my international trademark, Mm -hmm. and I was planning on expanding on a global level. And then another designer, I will not name, you can figure it out, um, (laughs) opposed my international trademark. (laughs) And it created a lot of complications for me to be able to wholesale. So I had to operate very under the radar. It kind of hamstrung me until the lawsuit was resolved. And the lawsuit went on for five and a half years. So a lot of people, I think, were wondering, like, what's going on? What am I doing with my business? Like, am I taking it seriously or whatever? But that was essentially what was happening. Mm I had to figure out ways to adapt and to offset the losses of revenue from being able to wholesale. So I launched a different collection, my Shearling line under a different brand name. 
And then I did all these other projects. Like I designed the costumes for the ballet. I did a merchandise thing with the stampede. I did the curation with the Glenbow Museum. And all these different opportunities wouldn't have arisen had that not happened. Mm -hmm. So I looked at it, uh, you know, in, in retrospect, I look at it as a gift. Yeah. But you know, it was an interruption to that path. Mm -hmm. But well, I, was it actually not an interruption? But was it the right? Was it I, guiding you onto the right? Path? I think it was guiding me onto the right one. Yeah. Um. And and it was actually what uh was what branched um the interiors to like a, a greater focus on it. I guess I started thinking at my fifteen year mark, like why did I experience all these different things, mm -hmm. and you know, trying to amalgamate all of those things and and how can I harness them all so the thing that I've sort of been contemplating now is the idea of doing um, boutique hotel development <gasps> because I understand the psychology of wearing a nice garment mm -hmm. or you know existing in a nice surrounding of an interior and I think um, boutique hotels are sort of the next level mm -hmm. because it becomes an experiential thing mm -hmm. and you weave yourself into the cellular memories of people's lives. It's true. And I think there's something really profound about that. So to be able to sort of curate the boutique or work with, you know, culinary people that I have relationships with to create the food or, and then the environment and the whole, like, I, I think narrating, mm -hmm. you know, the idea, that's the most stimulating thing for me, regardless of what the medium is. And that was one of the things that I took away from all the different experiences is that regardless of what the medium is, I enjoy being a visual storyteller. Yeah. Being able to narrate something that resonates with people and it challenges them to think about their own lives differently, then I feel like I've actually done something. Mm, I love that. I so look forward to continuing to watch this incredible journey, being a maverick in your own field, paving your own way. But I think it all comes from, and what inspires me is that you really listen to yourself. Mm. Yeah. And that it, whether, whether or not it's your guiding light, your spirituality, God, whatever guides you, you really listen to that. And I think that's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing, yeah. and I'm, I, I, and I say that from the perspective that I, I feel humbled to be aware of it, mm -hmm. and and that's the lesson I think, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's really important to find that connection to what's greater than yourself. I love that I was able to spend time with you today. I so love nice all to the time that I get to spend with you. <laughs> but this was extra special. Thank you so much for sharing. Oh, Such an incredible well, journey that me. you're on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Live, Learn, Lead with me, Alison Geskin. Don't forget to hit subscribe or follow. And a great free way to support this podcast is to review and rate it. Always remember, my friends, that the most powerful thing you can be is you. Mm -hmm.